1 Samuel 26 and the 21st verse. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day, behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my, my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Let's pray for our time in the Word. Father, I pray that you would help us now as we go before the Word. I pray that the fire and the power and the passion of the Holy Spirit would come upon us as we listen to what you have to say today. And I do pray, Father, that beyond my words, beyond my insights, Lord, that the main person that would be teaching here today is you, Lord. I pray that by your spirit and by your word that is opened in the eyes of many of us in this room, Father, I pray that you would speak. I pray that you would shape our lives, and I pray that you would give us both passion and power, wisdom and guidance to live the kind of life that you want us to live in this world. Father, we trust you for what you'll do now in the mighty and merciful and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Imagine with me for a second that there's somebody in your life that's holding a major grudge against you. And this grudge is so serious for whatever reason that they actually want to destroy your life. They don't just want to irritate you. They don't want just to make things harder for you. They actually want to ruin your life. So if you're a middle schooler or a high schooler, maybe this person is out for you in social media. I've heard some horrible stories about kids who've been so shamed through social media that they've had to leave schools. Imagine that somebody's after you. There's evil in their hearts. You're in their crosshair, and they want to take you down. Or imagine that you're a homeschool mother, and you're doing your best to invest your life into the lives of your kids for the glory of God, but there's somebody in your neighborhood that for some reason just can't stand you, and they want to take you down. They're spreading rumors in the neighborhood about you, and they're looking for that one rumor that would be so bad that you would actually have to think about selling your house and moving. The the person's got evil in their hearts. You are in their crosshairs, and they literally want to take you down. These things happen in the world. Imagine that you're in your workplace, and there's somebody there that just can't stand you, and they want not only to disrupt your move up the corporate ladder, if you will, but they want to destroy your career. They want to get you fired in such a way that you couldn't even get a job at another place. There's evil inside their heart. You are in their crosshairs, and they're doing everything they can to take you down. Now imagine with me that in some way, shape, or form, the circumstances turn around so now the one, that the one who has been after you, you have the opportunity to do to them exactly what they've been trying to do to you. Some way, shape, or form, some 
information comes to you or some opportunity comes to you and now you can shame them on Facebook or you can drive them out of the neighborhood or you can get them fired from their job. You've got it right in your hand. The opportunity has arisen. You can get back at your nemesis. What would you do? Now, I know that we're in church. I know that we all know the answer we're supposed to give to this question, but I'm not looking for the right answer. I'm looking for the real answer. What in your heart would you do if someone was just absolutely after you and you had them over a barrel? What would you do? That's the question we're going to ponder for at least the first part of the message today, and David's going to help us. Because for the second time in his life, David is in this exact situation. Saul has been pursuing him and pursuing him and pursuing him. And Saul's desire is not to make David's life hard, although he made David's life very hard. Saul's desire was to kill him. Saul's desire was to take him out. Saul's desire was to wipe him off the face of the earth and perhaps even his name off the face of the earth. And yet, the Lord turned circumstances around. So let's now look and see what David did. Let's see how this man of faith responded when he had the man of flesh in his grasp. David, as you'll remember, had been running from Saul for a very long time. We don't know exactly how long, but this was not a quick trial in his life, beloved. He had been chased out of his own country, and he was running and running and running for his life day after day, week after week, month after month, probably year after year. This was a protracted, very difficult trial. He's wandering around at this time in the desert that was to the south and to the east of Jerusalem and still in an area that we would probably call Israel today, but at that time was outside the boundaries of Israel. And Saul was constantly looking for an opportunity to find out where David was so that he could go and kill him. You may remember this people called the Ziphites. They were a people that lived in this general area and they before had betrayed David to Saul. They knew where David was and they went and told Saul where he was and they decided to do this again. They decided again that it would be in their best interest to get to sort of garner the favor of the king and tell him where David was and so they did that. Saul was very excited to hear the news. He gathered 3,000 of his choicest soldiers and he went after David in the desert. David was there with a ragtag bunch of 600 men. They were doing the best that they could, but they weren't much against an an army of 3,000 men who were highly trained and highly skilled. And again, beloved, Saul was not out just to harass them. He was not out to arrest them. He was out to kill each and every one of them. This was a very, very serious situation. David somehow, through the grapevine, heard that Saul had come into that area, but he wanted to make sure that his information was correct, so he sent spies out And his spies not only found out that Saul was in the area, but they actually found out exactly where Saul was camping. And if you read the details of chapter 26 carefully, you'll see that Saul camped exactly in the place where the Ziphites told him that David was. So Saul was there, David's spies find them, and David decides to take a few of his choice men and to go out and spy out the camp. And somehow they perched themselves in some place where they could see down into the camp, they could see Saul, They could see his commander, his uh, armor bearer, excuse me, his name was Abner, and they could see all of the soldiers. And so David asked the few men that were with him, which one of you guys is brave enough to go down there with me into the camp now and take care of business? And it turned out that a guy named Abishai, or however you would say his name, rose up and said, I'll go, I'll go with you. 
So David and Abishai sneak down toward the camp and it's nighttime. Saul is asleep, his commander is asleep, all the men are asleep. And they actually get close enough to the camp where they can see the details of Saul's face and they can see that his spear is stuck in the ground right next to his head. And here in this amazing moment where God has delivered Saul into David's hand, David's confidant, Abishai, whispers this to him. He says basically, sir, God has given your enemy into your hands. God has given you the opportunity of a lifetime for the second time. There was another time when David had Saul in his grasp. You remember the story in that cave? where David was hiding in a cave and Saul came into that cave under very vulnerable, vulnerable circumstances and David decided by faith in God to let Saul go. Now for a second time, Saul has, God has delivered Saul into David's hand and Abishai is saying, here it is, here's your opportunity. And he says to David, please sir, I beg of you, please, let me go down into the camp, I'll do the deed for you. I will take his spear and I will pin him to the ground and I promise you something, I will not have to strike twice. I will get him for you. And now, beloved, here we have the amazing moment that David has to face. We have this amazing moment where the man of God has in his grasp to do to the man of flesh what the man of flesh has been trying to do to him all along. Saul has been trying and trying and trying to kill David, and now David has the absolute opportunity to kill Saul. Saul had wrongfully accused David. He was relentlessly pursuing David. There was nothing right about what Saul was doing. There was nothing wrong with what David had done. In many ways, David would have been perfectly just to take Saul out right at this moment. So what will he do? And I ask you again, what would you do, honestly? Again, we all know the answer we're supposed to give, but I'm saying in your own heart, if you had a chance to get revenge on the person who had made your life a living you-know-what, what would you do? David's heart was set on the Lord. His mind was filled with the words of the Lord. I don't know how it worked for him out there in the desert. I don't know if he was able to have a copy of the scripture with him or not. But I do know that earlier in his life, he was trained by people the likes of Samuel, and David knew the word of God backward and forward, and it was deep inside of his heart. He was not just a good man. He was a man of the word of God. He knew the will and the ways of God, and so he said this to his confidant. Please look with me in verses 9 through 11. Do not destroy him. And why is that, David? For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, what I hear him saying is, Abisha, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Vengeance absolutely belongs to the Lord and God is able to avenge himself in one way or another. I don't need to do this deed for God. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. And with that, David and Abisha took Saul's spear and the water jar, which were right next to his head. And the scripture clearly says that neither Saul nor anybody in the camp woke up because the Lord himself 
had caused a very deep sleep to fall upon the entire army. And I find that so touching because it means that God was being faithful to David. It means that that God was working for David. It means that David did not need to do God's job because God was gonna do the job for David. Do you see? This is what it means to live by faith, beloved. We look at God's word, we listen to God's word, we believe in God's word, we hope in God's word, despite the worst of circumstances, and we trust that God will work to accomplish what he has already promised to accomplish. David did not know that God had caused his sleep to fall upon the men. All he knew is he wasn't going to kill the king, but he was going to show him that he could have killed him. And unbeknownst to David, God was working. God was working. God was being faithful to him. And that is just such an amazing thing to me. It's so touching to me. What also touches me is David's God-focused restraint. David, for David, his actions were guided by the Lord rather than being guided by opportunity. And there's a sentence I'd really like you to pay attention to. David was guided by the Lord rather than being guided by opportunity. Sometimes opportunity knocks and it's not the Lord's fist that's knocking on the door. David's life was guided by his faith in God rather than his battles with other people. David made this decision to follow the Lord not primarily because he was an amazing man but because he was a man of the word and he wanted to follow after God. He knew God's will, he knew God's ways, he knew God's heart, and he knew that no matter what Saul was going to do to him, the Lord would take care of business, at least, if nothing else, by the end of the day. If nothing else, at the day of judgment, God would take care of business. David knew that if he valued the king's life, the Lord would actually value his life. So when the moment of opportunity came, David did the right thing because he had prepared his soul to live by faith in all circumstances. And here's another place where I find a a very important lesson for us. To my mind, a man like David or people like us, we cannot prepare for a moment of testing like this in the moment of testing. If you wait until the moment to prepare for the moment, it's too late, right? Isn't that true? If you were a, a boxer or a fighter or some thing like that, and you decided not to train for the fight, and you get into that ring, you might actually pay with your life. I know we look at boxing as entertainment, but the truth is those guys are taking their lives into their hands. And so they prepare day by day so that they're ready for the moment of that one big day. David did not prepare for this moment in the moment. David prepared for this moment day by day, living by faith in God, saturating his mind with the word of God, singing his songs to God, writing his songs to God, singing the praise of God, speaking about the will of God, leading his people in the ways of God. And then when his day of testing came, beloved, he was ready. He was ready. So how about us? How are we doing with this? How would we respond if we were in David's shoes? Would we do the right thing for the right reasons? Would we understand the right theological, biblical arguments for doing the right thing? Is our mind saturated enough in the word of God? Is our heart filled up enough with the spirit of God that we would not take vengeance on our enemies for the exact right reasons? Well, if the answer to those questions is gonna be yes, if we're gonna end up doing the right thing, this is what I know. We have to prepare day by day by day by day. One of the great dangers, by the way, of walking with the Lord is just getting bored with the whole thing. 
It's like, man, I've read this a hundred times. I already know this lesson. I already know this thing. And we're not preparing day by day. Then the time of testing comes and we don't, we're lost. We don't know which way to go, left, right, or backwards. And we're going to see in a few minutes that David was not a perfect man. And there are some things we should not emulate about David. But in this, we should absolutely follow this man into the presence of God. And day by day, saturate our minds, saturate our hearts with the things of God. As for David at Abishai, they went to the other side of the valley where Saul was, and they perched themselves up on some sort of hill or something like that. And from there, David cried out to Abner, not to Saul, but to Saul's armor bearer. And he basically said, hey, Abner, how's it going over there? How you doing? David's booming voice caused Abner to wake from his slumber, and he said in his haziness, he said, who are you that calls out to the king. And David responded to him, say Abner, aren't you supposed to be a man's man? Is there anybody in Israel who could even compare to you and yet what have you done here tonight? What have you done? Aren't you supposed to be watching over the Lord, your king? And don't you know that as the Lord lives you ought to die for this fact you have failed in your job? Abner, where's his spear? Abner, Where's his water jar? Where's his ability to defend himself? Where is his ability to nourish himself? You have failed, Abner. Just putting myself in Abner's shoes, I think I would have been incredibly confused in this moment. Waking up out of a deep sleep, wondering, probably wondering, where exactly am I? Who's talking to me and what's all this about? But while he's a little bit disoriented, Saul knows exactly what's happening because he knows David's voice. He recognizes David's voice and he calls out and after they go back and forth a few times, they figure out that indeed this is Saul and that is David. So once it was settled who was there and what the situation was, David cried out to Saul and he pled for his life before Saul in words that are so incredibly moving to me. Please look with me now at verses 18 through 20. David said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Those are questions David had asked Saul before. Now therefore, let my Lord the king hear the words of his servants. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, then may he accept an offering. And I gotta tell you, I love this about David. I love this about him. Even in the midst of such a difficult trial, he's saying, listen, if I deserve this, if God is the one bringing this into my life, then I receive it. But can't we just go to the Lord and give him an offering? I'm willing to repent of my sins. I love this about him. He wants personal vindication, but he is not claiming that he's without fault. I love this about David. But if it is men who are stirring you up against me, then may they be cursed before the Lord, for they have driven me out this day and I, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. One of the worst things you could say to a true follower of God. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. This is unthinkable for David that that would happen. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Beloved, I hope that you can 
hear David's heart and feel his pain. He was a deeply flawed man, as we're going to see in a few minutes. But this was a true man of faith, and he just couldn't understand why all this was happening. And even though among people he felt he was probably a, a comparatively powerful person, compared to the king, he was nothing. When he looked at himself in light of the king, he felt that he was nothing but a flea or a partridge in the mountains. Just think about that metaphor for a little bit. A a partridge in the mountains. This is how David felt. He's trying to flitter and fly left and right. And there's a king with a whole army of hunters after him for God knows what. The king could eat anything that he wanted. Why would he want a little partridge? As the Lord would have it, he turned the tables around so that the hunter actually fell prey to the partridge. Two times. I've never heard a story of a partridge getting over on his hunter. Have you? That's about what this was like in David's mind. That's about how absurd this was. The partridge became the one who was in power. Twice David had the opportunity to kill Saul. And twice David fixed his eyes on God and said, I will not do that. Because even though he's an evil man and I am inside of his crosshairs, even though he wants to ruin my life and not just make my life hard. God has put his hand of anointing upon him and I will not touch the king. I will not disrespect the king even if the king is disrespecting me. And I will trust, I will trust that God will see my heart and vindicate my life. Oh, I love David, beloved. I just love him. At least for a moment, Saul was struck to the heart. And I don't know how serious his repentance was. I don't know how authentic it was. I just know that before God and before these people, before David, at least for a moment he humbled himself. I think probably, as I've thought and prayed about this, I see this in Saul, he's kind of schizophrenic. And I I mean that literally. I I actually think he was schizophrenic in some way. But brought on not by psychological imbalances or chemical imbalances, brought on by spiritual compromise. And I think this was a moment where he kind of wakes up and goes, oh my Lord, what am I doing? What am I doing? Look at verse 21. I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm. Because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and I have made a great mistake. And maybe, you know, I'd love to talk with you about this later, but I I actually think in this moment Saul meant what he was saying. Here's what David answered. Here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, As your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation, especially, Saul, the tribulation you're causing me right now in my life. And then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son, David. You will do many things and will succeed in him. And David went his way and Saul went his way. As I read that, I think Saul actually saw as we can show many other verses where, at least in glimpses, Saul saw that the cards were on the table. Saul was going down, David was rising up, and what could Saul do but acknowledge it and humble himself? 
in the heat of the moment, when the opportunity came to do to his enemy what his enemy wanted to do to him, David let the word of the Lord and the will of the Lord and the ways of the Lord dominate his decisions rather than letting the opportunity dominate his decisions. And judging from this brief exchange, it would seem that his decision had its desired effect because Saul seems to have reconsidered and repented of his ways and at least for the moment invited David back into the fold. Who knows what was really happening in Saul's heart, but for the moment, at least it seems that this is going the right way. But it only takes us one more verse to read before we realize that whatever the truth of Saul's heart is, David is not persuaded. So let's look now at chapter 27 in verse one. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So he's not buying it. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hands. The words that say that David said in his heart, in the Hebrew, it literally, more literally says that David said it to his heart. And I find this meaningful. Sometimes I just wish Bible translators would just be as literal as possible. Because when I hear David spoke to his heart, I see David being two things to himself. He's the adult and he's the child. He's the shepherd and he's the sheep. He is the counselor and he's the counselee. He's speaking to his heart. And the truth is, this is part of what it means to be human. We all speak to our hearts, don't we? We all counsel ourselves. I'm not talking about that you walk down the street and like talk to yourself out loud like you're some sort of crazy person, but I'm saying there is a constant, almost ceaseless inner dialogue between the self and the self. And the trick of being a Christian is learning how to guide that dialogue so that it's saturated in the gospel. So that we're speaking to ourselves about the right things and that therefore we're taking the right actions, you see. There are three parts of what David said to himself. Two of them he got right, one of them he got tragically wrong. And I pray with all my heart now that we'll hear what the word of God would say to us because there's huge lessons for us here if we'll only Listen, the first part of what David said to himself was the problem, and he was exactly right about this. He said, listen, Saul might mean this for a minute, but he doesn't mean it in the long term. This guy's going to get me. He is not going to stop, and he has all the resources available to him that he needs. He certainly has all the passion in his heart that he needs. He's going to come after me and come after me and come after me until I die. And I am absolutely weary, bone tired of living under the constant threat of death. David, and I think for all of us, the beginning of self-counsel, the beginning of self-talk is rightly assessing the problem. And as far as it goes, David got this right on the button. He was right. Whatever's happening in Saul's heart at this moment, we're going to see in the following chapters. And next week will be a fun one. Next week is the one where Saul goes to consult the medium. I tried to hand that message off to Ethan Larson, but he wouldn't take it. So next week we get to talk about a time where Samuel actually comes back from the dead. Like, what are we going to do with this? I don't know, but the main part of the next chapter is about the darkness of Saul's heart, actually. His heart is very dark, beloved. And he is not going to stop pursuing David until he's done. David got it right. And we should learn from this. We should preach to our hearts honestly about the problems in our lives. 
We should not minimize them. We should not cloud around them. We should try to see the problem as crisply and as clearly as possible, even if that sight is somewhat devastating. David did a good job here. The second part of what he said to himself, though, is what I call the solution, and here he went very wrong. And he went wrong for the second time, actually, in exactly the same way. Specifically, David said to his heart, listen, I've got to get out of this place. He said, there is nothing better for me. Those words really gripped me. There's nothing better for me than to go to the mortal enemies of Israel, than to go to the Philistines, than to go to those godless Gentiles that David had before talked about when he killed Goliath. He said, there's no other way for me to stop Saul from seeking me. There's no other way to save my life. So in principle, the second part of self-counsel, I do think, is to look for solutions to the problem. If we're talking to our hearts, if we're ministering to our hearts, if we're counseling our hearts, and all we do is name the problem and stop there, then you know what we're going to end up doing? The train of our life is going to stop at self-pity station, and we will not depart from there, right? And in fact, we'll ask others to join us. Oh, please come with me and join me in feeling sorry for me. We have to do more than deal with the problem. We have to look for the solution. There's nothing wrong with what David did here. But here's the mistake David made. And this is not a mistake he makes all that often. But what he should have done is gone to seek the Lord. Isn't that right? If you remember, he had the high priest of Israel with him. He had God in his heart. He was writing songs to God through this whole time of his life. But he's weary. He's tired. He's just absolutely exhausted. And don't you ever feel like that when you're so tired, your instinct to go to the Lord just kind of breaks. And David, instead of going to the Lord, decides to consult himself. And he's like, listen, there's only one way out of here, and that is I've got to go to the enemy. He should not have done that. Beloved, we can have compassion for David at this point. I think we should have compassion. I don't think the Bible is telling us the story of of an evil man here. I think the Bible is telling us the story of a man of faith who is breaking down because he's so weary from the trial of his life. Do you see that? I don't feel judgment in my heart toward David, and yet at the same time, we have to analyze what he did and say, hmm, maybe we should walk in a different way. And we really have to slow down because it's easy when you're looking at the story of somebody else's life to just say, oh, they should have done this, they should have done that. That's so easy. What's really hard is when the avalanche of emotions and and exhaustion is upon you and then you have to make good decisions. Isn't that right? So we need to look at David's life. Get inside of his skin. Feel the pain that he felt and then say, hmm, how could he have made a better decision at that moment? It's a simple thing. Go to the Lord. Listen to the Lord. Follow in the ways of the Lord and the Lord will guide you in the way that you should go. The third part of what David said to his heart was the effect of his actions and he actually got that right too. The reason that, uh, or David reasoned that if he left the land, Saul would despair of seeking him, Saul would stop trying to kill him, and David would finally get a respite from the constant fear of death. And David was actually right about this. But in being right, it exposes the problem. And here's the problem as I see it, all right? David saw the problem well. Saul's gonna kill him. David saw the end goal well. I need to get out of this situation. 
I need to be delivered from the hands of an evil man. David was right about this. Here's the problem. David did not trust God to get him from the problem to the goal, you see? God also saw where David was. God also wanted to to deliver David. God wanted to do more than deliver David. He wanted to use David to do some of the most amazing things in the history of the earth. And the reason I say that is because David was probably one of the most powerful living prophecies of Jesus Christ that ever was. God had great, enormous plans for David beyond anything he could ever ask or imagine. And God knew he had to move him from here to there. But God's path was different than David's path. And in this moment, David chose his own path. And I'm telling you, there's a lot to learn right here. You can actually see the problem in your life well and see the ultimate goal well, but then say, you know what, I'm on my own to create a path between the two. Sometimes when God lays out his path between these two things, it doesn't look good to us. It doesn't look fun to us. If David had sought the Lord, the Lord probably would have told him to stay put because that's what he told him before. We don't get any indication that God had changed his mind about these things and that would not have seemed like good news to David. But beloved, anytime we deviate from God's plans, we only complicate the whole situation. Isn't that true? Situation's already difficult and we decide, well, here's God's wisdom, here's my wisdom. I'm gonna choose my wisdom and then in the, in, in the end of the day, we actually make the, the problem worse. And so I just see so much that we can learn here, beloved. We need to preach to ourselves by the gospel. We need to preach to ourselves by the word of God. David had just lived as the most amazing man of God in this heat of the moment where he had Saul over a barrel. But when that moment was over and the avalanche of emotion crashed upon him, he broke. He broke. And instead of consulting the word of God, the will of God, the ways of God, he ended up following in his own ways. And we're going to see in a minute, he made a a real mess of a number of things. As for David, when we think about David, when he wrongly counseled his heart, he ended up wrongly leading the people that were around him. And here again is a place where I just see so much for us to learn. If you speak to your heart in a wrong way, you will influence the people all around you in a wrong way. So what David did was he said to his 600 men, come on, gather your things, gather your family, and let's go. We're gonna go to the city of Gath. Do you remember the city of Gath? The city of Gath is the city of Goliath. It's the city where David went to see the king of Achish and then made himself look like a madman so that he could save his life. He brought all of his people in the wrong direction. But this time when he got to the city of Gath, the king and his warriors, for whatever reason, embraced David rather than rejecting David. And in fact, when David asked him, will you please give us a town because it doesn't seem right to me that I should live in your royal city, the king actually gave him an entire town and that town was named Ziklag. And by the grace of God, that town became the town of kings for many centuries to come in Israel. It was kind of like a Camp David is for us. It was a place where kings would go to resort and to do business. By the grace of God, God handed an entire city over to David, even when he was in his sin, if you will. But there they stayed for 16 months. He had been a faithful man in Israel, but now he was in exile for almost a year and a half. While David was there in Ziklag, the author tells us that he would regularly conduct raids. And if you read 
verses 8 through 12, to be very honest with you, it's confusing. Unless you know a lot about the peoples that are named there in that text, it's hard to follow what's actually happening. So this is a, this is a place where a church benefits from a pastor because you pay me to study. So I did all the work and I finally figured out what the heck was going on. I was so confused by this text. I was like, what is going on? And then finally it, it hit me. In the early parts of those verses, it says that David was conducting raids against this people and that people. It turns out that he was conducting raids against those who were themselves raiders. There were bands of people who would go through the southern part of Israel and would attack towns and they would take all of their livestock, they would take all of their produce, they would take all of their things. They were not known for killing a lot of people, they would only do that if they had to, but they would raid towns and take all their stuff. So what David was doing when he was in Ziklag is he would leave the city of Ziklag, go to the south, and he would raid the raiders. He would take things from those who had just taken everybody's things. But here's the twist. When he would go back to the city of Ziklag and the king would ask him, oh David, where have you been? What have you been doing? David would just flat out lie to him. David would say, I've been raiding in the land of Judah. I've been attacking this part of Israel. And so David was trying to get the king to think that he had turned against his own people so that the king wouldn't harm him and so that the king would think he had completely defected and would not go back. David was trying to create a safe environment for himself. He was tired of being under the threat of death. But he was lying, beloved. He concocted a great story, and he had to protect his story. So you know what he did? This gets really sad. Every time he would raid these raiders, he could not leave anybody alive, because if he did, they could get back to the king of Gath and tell him what was really going on. And if David was exposed, he would be exposed. And only God knows what would happen to him then. So he would kill men, women, and children. He'd kill everybody. They'd go out on a raid, they'd raid so-and-so, and they would just slaughter everybody. And then he would go back to the king of Gath and lie to him. Do you see this? I, I take a lesson from this. And we probably wouldn't go to the extent that David went, but this is an important lesson for us. Fleshly decisions always lead to fleshly actions. Fleshly decisions always lead to fleshly actions. David decided in his flesh to go to the Philistines. God did not send him there. Then David decided by his own wisdom and by his own will how to gain favor with the Philistines. I cannot see anywhere where it says that he sought the Lord here. In fact, God is not even mentioned in, in chapter 27. God is not even mentioned in chapter 27, beloved. David was not walking away from the Lord, but what we have here is a man who is incredibly weary, incredibly exhausted, and he's making some bad decisions. He's definitely walking away from the wisdom of the Lord. Fleshly decisions always lead to fleshly actions, and there's no reason that we should try to rescue David from this. You know, I was just thinking this morning, you remember later when David asked the Lord, can I build a temple for you? And do you remember the Lord's answer to him? He said, no, no, you can't because you're a man of, of blood. You're a man who shed blood. And haven't you ever wondered at times, well, what does that mean? He's a king. He's supposed to do that kind of thing. Well, I think this kind of story is what the Lord had in mind. This was innocent blood that David should not have shed. David shed blood to cover his own backside. And we should not try to rescue him from that. But having said that, I want to point out to you how amazingly gracious God had been to David while he was there. No matter his sin, God did grant him a city. 
And God retained that city for his kings for centuries and centuries of time. I see that as grace in the midst of bad decisions. God did give David victories over all of his enemies, and maybe we could argue about that. Maybe you would say, no, God would never give victory. That's a sin, and and maybe you're right about that. But all I know is everywhere David went, he won. The favor of the Lord seems to still be with him. God gave him favor with King Achish. God kept his family safe. God kept his men and and their families safe. God kept David out of the threat of constant death for at least a year and a half. And when I look at this, I just say, listen, David's being sinful, but God is being gracious. When God's people fail in their weariness to live by the wisdom of the Lord, we still live by the grace of the Lord. That's an important point. When we fail in our weariness to live by the wisdom of God, we still live by the graciousness of God. I'm not saying that God minimizes our sin or that he minimized David's sin or that he did not take it seriously or that he does not take our sin seriously. All I'm saying is that God has a purpose for our lives and he is going to accomplish that purpose no matter how much grace it takes to be poured out upon us. Paul said in in Romans that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And then he quickly went to say, this does not mean that we should go about sinning just so that grace would abound. I'm not saying this is a license to sin, but Paul never took the point back, beloved. If we get in our flesh and we get weary and we make bad decisions, God is going to cover us. God is going to lead us. God is going to bring us all the way home. Such is the stunning, amazing grace of God. And we'll see this in the next weeks as we proceed in 1 Samuel and then into 2 Samuel. As I step back from chapters 26 and 27 and I think about all that I have learned from them, and and I will tell you my time of study in these chapters has been very rich, I think that for my part, the most important thing that I've learned is this, and I want to pass this on to you. I've already said it, but I want to say it again. Living by faith means that we look to the Lord rather than looking to opportunity. Living by faith means that we don't let our decisions be dictated by the opportunities that present themselves to us. We let our decisions be dictated by the will and ways of our Father. We look to God. We seek God. We cherish his word. We seek to follow in the way of his word. But there's a catch to this. And that is that to be able to live by faith in the heat of the moment means that we have to prepare for the moment before the moment. Isn't that right? I already made the point, and I don't need to make it again, but I want to state it again. In order to live by faith in the heat of the moment when all the chips are down and the decisions have to be made, we have to prepare for that moment before the moment. So this drives me back to thinking about my way of life. How are you doing, O my soul? Is the word of God valuable to you, O my soul? Are you listening to the word and to the heart of your Father, my soul? How are you doing, my soul, with regard to the body of Christ? Are you, are you cherishing the body? Are you listening to the body? Are you learning from the body? Are you doing life from the body? Or do you think that life in Christ is just all about you and Jesus? Are you benefiting from those that God has given to you as a gift? How are you doing, my soul? Are you living in a gospel-saturated community or not? How are you doing, my soul, when you speak to yourself? How are you counseling yourselves about the the problem in your life, the problems in your life? What are the words that are coming out of your mind and going back to your own mind? How is the self-talk in your life? Is it gospel-saturated or not? In other words, beloved, all this lesson drives me back to think about my way of life, my pattern of life. 
And I want to encourage you to join me in that. So I want to take a minute now. I'm just going to pray. And then after I pray, I put a PowerPoint slide up there just to give you some categories to think about. And I want to just give you a minute or two to sit before the Lord and consider your way of life. Just think to yourself, am I preparing for myself moment by moment so that I'll be ready for the moment when it comes? Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for what you did way back in David's life. And I thank you for making that story a living story in our lives today. Thank you so much, Father, that Paul said that these things were written for our instruction, that we might be built up in our faith, that we might be built up in our love, that we might be built up in hope. And I pray that it would do just that. Oh, Father, help us now to search our hearts. Help us to be people who ceaselessly value your word and saturate our minds and our hearts with your word. Help us to be a people who listen to your heart. Oh God, it's possible to know your words and yet neglect your heart, so please help us. Please help us to embrace your heart. And please help us now, Father, as we sit in silence, please speak to each one of us about adjustments we need to make to our way of life. And I thank you, Father, for what you'll do. Thank you, Father, for this brief time. I pray that you would use it to inspire us to take more time with you, to put ourselves before you today, to open our hearts before you and to let you speak into our lives. Father, we thank you so much again for bringing David's story before us, and we pray now that you would make it live and breathe inside of our lives. In Jesus' holy and happy name we pray, amen.